Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. It is wonderful to welcome you to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. It is great to have a friend and one of the most important voices out of Israel, the anthologizer of our time of the Israeli experience, Dr. Mishi Harman. Um, Mishi is the founder, um, a co-founder and host of Israel Story, the most listened to Jewish and Israeli podcast in the world. It's a show which Ira Glass calls the Israeli This American Life and has hundreds of thousands of listeners in 194 countries around the world. It tells long-form human interest stories about Israel and Israelis. Mishi was born in Jerusalem. He grew up in the city. Following his military service in the IDF, he did his undergrad in history at Harvard, a master's in archaeology at Cambridge, and a PhD, a biography of the first Protestant missionary in Ethiopia at the Hebrew U in Jerusalem. Mishi has taught at Harvard, founded an art-based startup, and lectures around the world. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Federica, their daughter, Halel, and their dog, Golda Mishi. Welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Elliot. It's a real uh, honor and, and not pleasure these days, but uh, I'm, 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 I'm glad that we're able to speak. Well, well, Mishi, thank you. And you are a friend. You've, you've been at Park Avenue Synagogue. This is a lifelong dream to have um, the, you, of all people, on our modest podcast effort. Um, but unfortunately, as you say, it's, it's not a good time. You have totally pivoted. I sort of came of age on podcasts listening to Israel's story, and uh, I listened to it uh, in uh, one and a half times in English, and to to improve my Hebrew, <laughs> I listened to it on you know 0.7 uh, speed in uh, Hebrew, and it was my way of having like a shulchan ivrit uh, that I would keep my Hebrew up, and this long form of journalism has um, really sustained me over the years. Uh, and I encourage everyone to listen to Israel's story in good times. And then during the judicial reform, you, you, you pivoted and you started telling stories of the, the signators and their descendants of um, the, the founding document, Megillat uh, Ha'atzma'ut, of the State of Israel. And now, of course, the world is totally different and, and not for, for a better um, reason. And you have, you have pivoted to sort of these postcards, these slivers of life, um, in, in wartime stories, like wartime diaries. And I, I'm wondering if you could tell me um, uh, about how you've pivoted right now and why you've pivoted as you have right now. Of course. Well, you know, um, on October 6th, uh, 1973, my father, who passed away this year, was uh, sick at home, and he he didn't go to synagogue that day. Um, and my mother, who was a new immigrant from New York and had two little 
two little babies at home came back from uh, from shul, and at 2 p.m. the sirens began, and my father, the Israeli, said to her, oh, don't worry, Dorothy, it's probably just kids on the rooftop uh, who set off an alarm. And 50 years and a day later, my wife Federica woke me up on October 7th, 2023, to the sound of alarms, and I said the exact same sentence to her that my father had said 50 years earlier. But of course, um, it wasn't in either case, unfortunately, kids playing on rooftops and setting off alarms. Um, and it was very clear, very quickly, that everything had changed and that in an unimaginable way, the story of Israel um, had taken a dark, dark turn. And of course, um, there have been, we've cycled through many, many different emotions since that, um, since that terrible day of October 7th, from shock and disbelief to fear, to anger, to resilience, to inspiration. Um, but very, very quickly on that first day, as everyone was scrambling to understand how they could fill a role in helping, um, it was clear to me that um, given this platform that we've created of Israel's story, which um, uh, has a certain reach um, in, in the world, um, we should be trying to shine a light on what life is like here and what different lives are like here what it's like to be a mom at home with four little kids and a husband who's in Miluim and no gun, or what it's like to be a family, God forbid, of someone who was killed or someone who was kidnapped, or of someone who goes to the front line to play music for soldiers or chefs who are cooking meals, and what it's like to be a Bedouin leader whose brother-in-law is a hostage in Gaza, but whose entire family lives in Gaza and is being bombarded by uh, by the Israeli uh, Air Force, or what it's like um, to have friendships with people in Gaza. And we've started releasing these daily episodes, which, as you said, are, are short postcards, um, really, that try to get a sense try to give a sense of what um, what the experience here is like. And I think that that's important outwardly because, um, because it's important for people around the world, especially um, in these times where there's unfortunately so many strong and polarizing opinions about Israel, for people to be able to get a sense of what Life is actually like here. And then in addition to that, we also recognized our entire project is predicated on the premise that sharing your story allows you, empowers you and empowers the people around you. And you are able to recognize the humanity in people once you hear their story. So we've also started in parallel something which you listeners around the world are not hearing, but these are storytelling events in Hebrew um, for people who have been evacuated from their homes or for soldiers or for people who are injured or for people whose partners are away uh, away in the army 
to share stories. And these are intimate things. We're not recording them. People are just sharing their stories. And I feel that there's a lot of strength in that as well. Right. In a way, it's, it's, sort of, it's a classic Jewish model, right? When you walk into a shiva house, uh, you're not supposed to ask the mourner for anything other than to share a memory, to share a story. And uh, that act, whereas it doesn't uh, alleviate someone's pain, it lets a person in pain know that somehow they're not alone, this fundamental human need to be heard, right. to be Absolute, seen. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And and in a sense, your effort right now is adding a. I mean, it's your it's your own malacha, it's your own activism, um, it's your own response because so many of these stories um, that you're sharing in the wartime diaries are people who are saying we're we're traumatized, but we're not paralyzed. Whether we are cooking or working in setting up a school in uh, a Dead Sea hotel or uh, picking fruit or um, getting politically engaged. I mean, there, there's just this, this sense of mobilization, which is actually extraordinary given um, where Israel was before October 7th. Uh, every, everyone, it seems to be a hands-on-deck moment. Absolutely. I mean... I think you 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 hit it on the on the nail on the head, Elliot. Because look, I mean, you know, we talk about October seventh as this uh, moment where everything changed, and it really did, right? Um, but let's also remember what was going on here before. Israel was tearing at the seams. People with very very different visions of what this place should look like were fighting out, basically an ideological war um, about the future of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And I think that, um, you know, it's very difficult to find silver linings in a situation where so many people on both sides are losing their lives. Uh, it really is. But as people have said time and again, the power of civil society in Israel that has stepped in where governmental agencies have failed, where our elected leadership has failed, is tremendous. And it shows something, I think, very deep um, about who we are. Um, and um, if we can harness that energy and that, uh, that generosity... I'll, I'll tell you a, a tiny anecdote that, that sort of... That, that sort of crystallize that for me it's in an episode that we actually aired last night um everyone's obviously now in a sort of spirit of generosity and volunteerism here right and we um we we were telling the story of one woman who uh works uh worked at the jerusalem hamal which was sort of the epicenter of uh volunteer active volunteer activity in jerusalem um and she had secured a uh a donation of uh, of twenty uh, laptop com laptop computers uh, for uh, children from the kibbutzim that were hit hard in uh, in uh, near Gaza in Otefaza, and 
um, she gave ten to Kfaraza and ten to Beri, and people from those communities came and picked them up. And as they were loading up the uh, the uh, computers into the cars, um, the Ethiopian security guard of the Hamal was looking on. So this woman Chaya Gilboa um, went to speak to him, and she said, and he said to her, "You know, my son is the first one in our extended family." who is going to go to the university. And I'm working double shifts here, um, and I have another second job too, in order to try to save up enough money to buy a computer for him because uh, he needs a computer when he, when he starts college. And if you by any chance in one of the future shipments have one computer that's, that's, uh, that's left over, if by any chance you could give it to my son, that would be tremendous. And Chaya stopped in her place and called one of the, called the car to come back and said, we're going to give nine computers to the kids of Beri. Mm. And I'm going to take one computer and I'm going to give it to this Ethiopian um, man who's the first person in his family to go to university. And she did. And it's this moment that sort of, for me, crystallizes this thing because, you know, when you're in this mode of being mission-oriented towards specific things, you forget that there's needs all over the place. And I don't know, there's something just so beautiful about being able to harness this spirit of, of generosity that we're all feeling now and expand it into society. And I hope, hope, hope that we can lead our lives and model our society in the years to come in that spirit. I mean, I mean that's a, a beautiful story. I want to want to pivot to a totally different side of it, which is, uh, as I've said to my congregation on multiple occasions, um, the first foundational and final word of my theology is that every human being is created in God's image, which means that we uh, affirm Israel's right to self-defense, to bring the hostages home. And, and the right of the IDF to do what it needs to do. And we also mourn and grieve over the loss of innocent Palestinian lives, uh, you know, as, as beholden as they are to the iron grip of Hamas. And I've spent much of my time trying to distinguish between Palestinians and Hamas terrorists. And so I'm wondering, is there a capacity either in your listenership in Israel or in uh, the diaspora, the English-speaking world, to hear those human stories, to hear the stories of Palestinians? Have you been able to tap into that? Is that part of your agenda? Absolutely. So thank you for asking that, Elliot. Um, as you know, I share your worldview. Um, and I think that the pain that a mother feels seeing her child executed in front of her eyes in a kibbutz uh, uh, outside of Aza is the same pain that a mother sees when her child is hit by a missile in Khamunis. And recognizing that pain and recognizing humanity in others doesn't in any way diminish um, anything anything 
from the pain that we feel for our own people who have lost their lives or whose lives have been up, upended. And, you know, we live in a time, and I think that this is understandable. It's a moment where it's very, very difficult, and I, and I don't uh, want to feel any feelings of being judgmental towards anyone. And a lot of people say, and a lot of my friends say, that what happened here is so horrific that they simply don't have enough space in their heart now to also hold the pain of others. And I think that, you know, I, I don't myself agree with that, but I can understand why people say that. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of suffering in the world and we sort of shield ourselves all the time. I'm not even talking now about the war. There's a tremendous amount of suffering all the time in the world. And we focus on things that are closer to us. Um, and I think that there's something probably very natural and maybe even healthy about about doing that. But perhaps if I can, Elliot, I'll just share a, a short story, which I also told on one of uh, the episodes that we've released um, in this series. So if... Uh, I apologize if if someone's already heard this, but my grandparents um, met in the early 1930s in England. They were both uh, they were both Jews from London, and they met at a formal debate in which my grandfather um, Abe uh, was debating who, the woman who would become my grandmother, Zena, and he was the um, he was the head of the Zionist Student Union at Oxford, and she was the head of the Anti-Zionist Student Union at the London School of Economics. And she was an anti-Zionist, or at least a non-Zionist, not because she had any particular um, beef um, with the idea of a Jewish homeland, but because like many progressive Jews and non-Jews in the years between the war, she did not believe in the concept of nation states and she was an internationalist. And um, while I don't know who uh, won that particular debate on that day, uh, suffice to say that uh, my grandfather ultimately won because in 1940 they uh, immigrated uh, together to, to Palestine, to, to Jerusalem, and then they spent their entire lives representing and in the service of uh, the state of Israel. But the reason I tell you this is because my grandmother lived to be 99 years old and was a very uh, major figure in my life. And she lived across the street from us. And in 2006, I uh, was watching television with her and it was the second Lebanon war. And she was already in her mid nineties at the time. And um, she uh, looked at me and she said, Look what a strange world we live in. Um, there are beautiful hills north of here um, that have vegetation and have wildlife and have trees. And we humans have drawn a line in the middle of those hills. And we call one side of that line Lebanon, and we call the other side of that line Israel. And now people from the Lebanese side are launching rockets at people from the Israeli side who in retaliation are shooting missiles and advancing troops uh, into Lebanon. And what is the television actually telling us? The TV is saying that when Moti Cohen 
from Kiryat Shmona uh, is hurt, when his life is upended, we need to mourn deeply because he's one of our own. And when Ahmad Salman's life is upended on the other side of the border, it's not that we have to rejoice. God forbid, no one says that. Um, but we can care a little bit less because he's not one of our own. And then she looked at me and she said, and this was a sentence that's, that has stayed with me ever since and has become sort of a guiding compass for me. She said, the truth of the matter is that I'm equally sad for both of them because a person is a person is a person no matter what. And I think that that's something that's often difficult to hold in our minds and in our hearts, but I think that there's a tremendous amount of truth to that. And I think that recognizing the humanity of civilians, and I completely uh, second your, your distinction here between murderers, between fanatic murderers who decide to wake up in the morning and go and commit horrific, horrific acts against other people, and civilian society. And there's a tremendous amount of, there, there are many Palestinians who are suffering terribly now. I mean, living in Gaza now is, is I, can't, I can't actually imagine what that's, what's, what that's like. And I, I, I can, I, I, perhaps just by saying that, I'm alienating certain people, and I want to be very clear that by saying that I am not in any way diminishing the pain that I or anyone else feels about our own losses, which is horrible. So these are very, very complicated times, and I, I, I hope that people that are able to see the humanity in, in, in others prevail. Thank you so much. And, and you, you, they are complicated times and you, you speak about all the emotions of the shock, of the grief, of the anger, of the circling the wagons, of the empathy for other. I think uh, one of the great, great challenges of this moment is finding a way to hold all those emotions all at once. And I think that by focusing on the human stories uh, the way that Israel's story has pivoted um, to these diary postcards um, is is an acknowledgement. There's a certain humility uh, and audacity, the humility not to be comprehensive uh, to the range of the human experience, but the audacity to bring that human experience to the fore. And so speaking to you, I know, is one of many uh, postcards of conversations today uh, and the good thing about this is that anyone uh, who wants to hear more of the human dimensions, a human story of Israel uh, during wartime, and please God, uh, into the years ahead to hear the vibrancy and dynamism of Israel in good times, uh, that's all on Israel's story, wherever you should find your podcasts. Um, Mishi Harman. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us on Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. Thank you so much, Elliot, and thank you for your friendship and for your leadership. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. 